Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. The sun has chased us back and forth, (laughs) but I realize that in a matter of moments, uh, I will have the same problem there as I was going to have here with the light blinding us. Uh, so I, I appreciate your, um, your understanding and patience. And especially to Josh, our, is the, are we okay? okay? Praise God. Well, the wrath of God is one of the most challenging and unpopular doctrines in all of Christianity. It's, it is one of those attributes of God that churches um, avoid teaching the world despises to hear, and even uh, we Christians struggle to accept. But if we are to declare the truth of Scripture, we cannot neglect the reality of the wrath of God, or as I like to call it, the bad news which makes the gospel so good. So what is the wrath of God? I'll tell you what it's not. The wrath of God is not the reckless, uncontrolled rage that we humans are capable of. That's not the wrath of God. So what is it? The wrath of God is the right and necessary response of God to evil, to sin. That is the wrath of God. His right and necessary response to evil. In other words, God does not initiate anger against us. It is His response to evil. And this response is both right and necessary. Why? Why? Because if God is really righteous and holy and and good and just, which we all believe, he must hate what is evil. He must, or he is not God. So that is the wrath of God. But why should you care? Why should we make ourselves uncomfortable this morning discussing such a topic? Why? Well, because the Bible tells us, and the verse will come up on the screen, in Romans 2 verse 5, that because of our hard and unrepentant hearts, we are storing up God's wrath for ourselves. You are. I am. Our sin is destining us for the wrath of God, and that's the bad news. That's the bad news. So here's what we must figure out this morning, okay? Three questions I'd like us to answer as we look at the wrath of God. Number one, what does it look like 
to have a hard and unrepentant heart. Okay, the kind of heart that stores up God's wrath. You saw the verse. What does it look like to have that kind of heart? Number one. Number two, what will it be like to experience God's wrath? This is what we don't talk about in church often. What will it be like to face the wrath of God? And number three, is there any way, any way to escape this wrath? So, with these in mind, these three questions, let's turn to our text for this morning, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You just heard it read by Brother Albert, and we're in Luke chapter 16. You know, our passage is found in the Gospel of Luke, which is an orderly account of the life of Jesus. And, 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 in, and in chapters 9 to 19, Luke has been recording the journey that Jesus is on traveling to Jerusalem, where he would ultimately do what? Suffer and die on a cross. But along this way, along the journey, Jesus has been teaching his disciples in various parables, and that's where we find ourselves in chapter 16. If you look at your text, and here he is addressing the Pharisees who were lovers of money. Lovers of money. Before we dive in, what is a parable? We need to understand this genre. What is a parable? A parable is an earthly illustration. It's something we know, something we can relate with, used to teach us a lesson about the kingdom of God, which is something we don't know. Right? We can't fully comprehend. That's a parable. And because parables are illustrations, they're, il they're illustrations, we have to be careful not to overinterpret the details. Why? We may, we may miss the, the big picture. Having said that, of all the parables taught by Jesus, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus is the only one in which a character is given a name, a specific name, Lazarus. And because of that detail, many scholars have concluded that this is not just a parable that Jesus is describing, but rather an actual event, an actual event. So with that in mind, let's start with verse 19. If you look at your Bibles, verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. So we begin with the unrepentant, hardened heart of the rich man. Look at the details. His purple clothing signified royalty, great wealth. Fine linen was his undergarments. He, look, look what else. He feasted sumptuously every day, which means he had more quantity and quality of food and drink than any one person could ever need. This rich man enjoyed a self-indulgent, luxurious life. Now, don't get me wrong. Because Jesus is not teaching here that money is evil. He's not. For, for Abraham was a wealthy man, 
was he not? And, but, he was, but he was right with God. So, so it is not money itself that the Bible condemns, but rather the love of money. The love of money. How much wealth the rich man has does not determine what is in his heart, what he loves most. That is the question this morning. Is it God in his heart or the idol of money ruling therein? Okay, so let's see. Verse 20. Look at verse 20 and 21. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So here we begin to see the hardened heart of the rich man. I just want you to understand what's in his heart. At his own gate, a poor beggar was cast, covered in painful, infected, discharging ulcers. I just want you to picture this sight. Lying in poverty, and yet he is so close to the rich man that he can even see what fell from the dining table, and he longed for it. The crumbs, the bones, the peels, whatever this rich man discarded, there must have been more food wasted than consumed. And yet, with so much abundance, there is no indication the rich man gave Lazarus even the slightest portion of all he had. Do you see his heart? Now, some of you may be tempted to sympathize um, with the rich man. Perhaps he didn't know. You know. Perhaps he lived on so large a property that you know, he, he, he couldn't have noticed a beggar lying at a gate. But as the passage continues, what do we find out? He does know Lazarus, doesn't he? Verse 23, he calls him by name. <laughs> what am I saying? He not only knew that a poor beggar covered in sores lay starving to death, steps away from his own table, but he also knew that man's name was Lazarus. <laughs> this was not an anonymous, homeless person he, he saw in passing. This was a neighbor he knew by name. Do you see the hardness of his heart? Even the dogs came. These are not domesticated puppies. These are wild street dogs, dangerous dogs, licking the sores on Lazarus' body. And why is this significant? Because Jesus is teaching the Pharisees. And for the Pharisees, being unclean, poor, and sick, covered in disease, meant that Lazarus must have been despised by God. That's how they thought. For the, for, for, the, for the Pharisees, being rich meant that you had the favor of God. But what is Jesus teaching them? It is not the status of your wealth, but the condition of your 
heart that matters to God. The condition of your heart. Verse 22, and so the poor man died. Look at the text. And was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. If you look at that verse, Lazarus dies and he receives no burial. Did you notice that? He receives no burial. He's a beggar. And though we are not told of the condition of his heart, we realize that it must not have been hard like the, like, like the rich man. It must have been repentant. And how do we know this? Because upon death he is carried by the angels where? To Abraham's side, which is another way of referring to heaven itself. Just picture this. This former beggar is now reclining next to the great patriarch of Israel at the banquet of heaven. <laughs> this was not the kind of honor the Pharisees expected for a lowlife like Lazarus. Verse 22 also says the rich man died. His wealth afforded him a proper burial, but the point is he also died. You see, death is the great equalizer, isn't it, of humanity? Your riches may delay death. It may delay death, but they cannot prevent death. And so that is the hard and hardened heart of the rich man. Now Jesus shows us what the wrath of God will be like for the hard and unrepentant of heart. Look at verse 23, please. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. We have to spend a few moments here on verse 23 because we need to understand this place that Jesus is introducing in the parable, the place of God's wrath called Hades or hell. It's a word that we trivialize today, don't we? We say, I went through hell. Have you ever done that? That was hell. Traffic was hell this morning. We trivialize it. And you know, I think we do this because it's easier to make light of such a dreadful reality than to actually contemplate it. It's easier. Because you see, the Bible's teaching on hell is so unpopular. Even among Christians, I want you to be honest, even among us, many of us would prefer to reject the idea of such a place if not for the fact that almost all the teaching we have on the subject comes from the lips of whom? Jesus himself. Jesus himself. Symbolized by fire, the first thing you must remember about hell is that it is not a place created for us. It's not. Hell was not created for humanity. It was created for the devil and his demons and any who, like them, reject God. It's the place where people who choose to reject God get what they 
want what they want. An eternity separated from him. Now, I must clarify here what I mean when I say separated from God. Those of you who have been attentive, you remember over the summer, we covered, as we were covering the attributes of God, we covered his omnipresence. Do you remember? It means God is present everywhere. So the question follows then, if you believe that, is God present even in hell? Truthfully, I'm going to be honest with you, I thought no. I've always thought no. Hell is a place entirely separated from God. That's what I've always thought. But I want you to look at what David says here in Psalm 139. It'll come up on the screen. Look what he says, verse 7. He asks, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? That's his question. Where can I go to flee the presence of God? And look at what he says in verse 8. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. That makes sense. If I make my bed in Sheol, which means place of the dead, you are there. You're there. Church, whether we call it Sheol in Hebrew or Hades in Greek, God is indeed present in hell. What does this mean? It means that upon death, the rich man does not escape the presence of God. I want you to be honest. Just think with me for a moment. If hell was really free of God's presence, think about this, I think the rich man and many people today would welcome a place like that, would they not? A place free of God to answer to? They would welcome a place like that. But no, God is present in hell. And here's the catch. Here's the catch. He is not present in the same way we experience him today on this earth. On earth, even if you're a non-Christian, you still experience the common grace and goodness of God. Even if you don't recognize that, you do. But in hell, he is present in his wrath. In his wrath. His, his, his anger against sin. His, his right and necessary response to evil. Look at verse 23. Is the rich man rejoicing to be free of God? No. He is in what? Torment. Torment means severe physical and mental suffering. That's what it means to be in torment. Why? Why is he in torment? Because he is faced with the presence of the unrestrained wrath of God. That's why. For his life of sin, his utter disregard for other people, his selfishness, his idolatry. You know, he may have escaped justice in this world. That happens, right? Do you all know that? That happens. You've seen that. 
With enough money and power and connections, many criminals can escape justice on this earth. They can get away. They can corrupt the verdict. Or worse, they can commit suicide and never be held accountable for what they've done. That happens. But what Jesus is teaching here is that that may happen here on earth, but no one escapes the justice of God. No one. Every crime you commit, known and unknown, will be paid for. Every single law broken in public or in secret, every evil thought, every careless word. Friends, the Bible, the God of the Bible cannot be bribed. He cannot be strong-armed. And he cannot be outrun. And hell is the place where he personally ensures that justice is served. Now, some of you listening to me, you hear this word torment and you think, isn't that cruel? Be honest. Even, even us as Christians, it's okay. As Christians, we, can, we, can, we, we need to wrestle with this. Isn't this cruel? How can a loving God, a God who is love, judge people this way? Have you thought like that? I've thought like that. Well, first, I want you to recognize, and just think with me, please follow me, that any judge, even on this earth, any judge who allows lawbreakers to go free so they can continue their lawlessness in society, that judge would not be considered loving, would he? Would he or her? No. What would they be considered? Corrupt. And far be it from God, the judge of all the earth, to do such a thing. But secondly, and more importantly, I want you to realize something. And this is probably the thing that most hit me as I prepared to share on this topic. If there is any comfort we can take in knowing that a place like hell exists, you're thinking, what comfort can I take knowing hell exists? If there is any comfort we can take, it's this. Friends, hell is not a place of cruelty. It's not. It's not a place of... This is so important for us to understand because cruelty means what? You are being punished more severely, more harshly than you deserve. That's cruelty. But God is never cruel. He, he's incapable because cruelty is injustice. It's mistreatment. He can't do that. It's against his character to do that. The punishment people receive in hell is always just, fair, and fitting to the crime. Always. It will be more tolerable for some than others. It will. That's why Jesus says to Pharisees and different people in his ministry, he says, it'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for... Remember those, those verses? 
It will be tolerable for some more than others, but God's presence in hell ensures absolute justice, not cruelty. Not cruelty. And so the rich man lifts his eyes. Look back at verse 23. He lifts his eyes, and what does he see? He sees Abraham and Lazarus far off. Is that not torment? To to, to wake up from death. You, You just died, and you wake up from death, and you realize where you are and how far away heaven lies. Is that not torment? And so what does he do? Verse 24, he calls out. Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Now, remember I told you it's a parable. So as a disclaimer, we should say that the Bible nowhere else talks about communication between those in hell and those in heaven. Nowhere else. So we shouldn't form a doctrine, okay? from this conversation in the parable. But it does provide us insight, doesn't it, into the state of mind for this rich man? And at first glance, look at verse 24. At first glance, you may wonder, has his heart changed? Look at the verse. Has the wrath of God in hell changed him? Is he asking for mercy? But sadly, as we look closer, we realize he is not asking for forgiveness, is he? Is he? This proud, unmerciful man is asking, expecting Lazarus to be ordered, to be sent to do his bidding. And of all things, to bring him a drop of water. The same rich man who would not give a cup to quench Lazarus' thirst on earth, who allowed dogs to lick his sores, now expects Lazarus to cool his tongue with water. Church, this is what we call unrepentance. This is unrepentance. And if hell is a, or if heaven, sorry, is a place where sin is no more, it follows that hell is a place where sin continues. Continues. Look at the rich man. Even after facing the wrath of God, he does not repent. He continues to do evil. That's why the Bible says, you've heard this, the Bible says hell is a place of gnashing of teeth. What does that mean? It means anger towards God. That's what it means. As time goes on, people in hell do not become repentant. They only grow in their rage against God. And it is because their evil continues without end, so too does hell. So too does hell. Verse 25, 
Abraham, tenderly, he directs the rich man. He says, remember. Look at verse 25. He says, remember. There is no dementia in hell. It would be a comfort to forget the past. Abraham says, remember. Remember the temporary material pleasures you chose in your life over the things of God. Jesus is stressing to the Pharisees, the kingdom of God is a whole new order. It's a reversal. Okay, it's a reversal of what the world values. The world looked at outward appearances. The world valued money and riches and pride. But God makes the last first. God sees the humble in heart. And so the rich man is in anguish. That's what it says in verse 25. He's in anguish. Because hell is a place of weeping. You've heard that, right? Weeping in pain, yes, but, but also weeping in regret. Regrets. <laughs> Memories from your past. Opportunities when you could have changed your life when you had the chance. Memories. Oh, church, as I read this, I just thought to myself, what memory, just what memories might we look back on and regret? Just think for yourself. How many times did you hear the word of God and neglect it? How many times were we called to repent and we ignored it? How many times were we pleaded with not to harden our hearts and yet we, we did? Regrets. And besides all this, look at verse 26. And besides all this, Abraham says, between us and you, a great chasm is fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. <laughs> what an unbearable realization, isn't it? For the rich man, his fate is sealed. <laughs> What's done is done. You can't press reset on the video game and start again. You can't pinch yourself to wake up from this nightmare. There is no way out. He's looking at There's no way out of this. This is where he would spend eternity. And it is in this desperate state that the rich man finally thinks of someone other than himself. Look at verse 27. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, Interesting, isn't it? The one who once blissfully ignored a beggar now begins to do what? To beg. What does he beg? To send Lazarus to my father's house. I have five brothers, he says. I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come to this place of torment. Friends, if you ever wanted to know if your loved one could return from the dead and tell you something, tell you anything, this is what they would say. This is what they would say. Be warned. 
be warned. You see, the rich man, he knows his brothers. He knows his own brothers. They're just like him. Uh, Hardened hearts, unrepented sin, uh, loving wealth, neglecting other people. That's who they are. They're just like him. So he thinks to himself, if Lazarus could return from the dead, you know, such a miracle, surely my brothers would be convinced to change. That's what he thinks. And if you're honest, I think you've thought that way too. I have. You know, God, if you could just prove yourself, right? Just, just do something miraculous and then I'll believe. Then I'll follow you. We do that. But now, Jesus is going to teach us how we might really escape the wrath of God. Okay? The wrath of God that the rich man is facing, how might we escape like Lazarus did? Look at verse 29. Look what he says. He says, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Do you see? The rich man says they need more evidence. Abraham says what? They have Moses and the prophets. They have the Old Testament. They have the very word of God. What is he saying? Everything your brothers need in order for them to believe and repent and be saved from the wrath of God, they have it already. It's already recorded for them. All the miracles God has already done. From creation, throughout history, ultimately leading to none other than Jesus himself. The brothers had it all already in the word. (laughs) But look at the boldness of the rich man. Verse 30, look at verse 30. But he says, no, Father Abraham. He says, nope, no. But if someone goes to them from the dead, then they'll repent. That's his thinking. Church, do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, no, the word of God is not enough. That's what he's saying. He's saying, God, uh, I know my brothers. I know them better than you do. Someone needs to go to them from the dead. Then only will they change. Does this sound familiar to you? What's our prayer? God, you don't know my family member. You don't know my friend. You don't know my coworker. You don't know what they're like. You don't know my boss. The Bible is not enough. They need more evidence. Isn't that how we think? But look at how Abraham responds in verse 31, our last verse. He says to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets neither will they be convinced even if someone should rise from the dead. I hope you realize the irony of what Jesus is saying here. Okay, this is so important. Just stay with me. Remember, he was traveling where? To Jerusalem. As he taught this parable, he was traveling to Jerusalem where he was going to do the very thing the rich man is asking for. Do you see that? What? He was going to rise from the dead. Jesus was going to do it. 
But as miraculous as his resurrection was, did it cause all people to believe? Did it? No. It didn't. Why? They denied. They, they came up with alternative explanations. The disciples must have stolen the body. You know, why? Why did they refuse to believe and repent? And why do so many people today still refuse? It is not for lack of evidence, church. It's not for lack of evidence. It is because our hearts are hardened by sin. That's why. Our hearts are so hard and callous that no miracle, not even a resurrection from the dead, will persuade you to believe. If you're sitting here thinking, God, I'm waiting for that miracle. Once the miracle happens, I will believe. I'm telling you, that's not going to work. It won't work. Nothing will persuade you to believe if you have already rejected God's word. Nothing. Which brings us to the only way you and I can escape the wrath of God. This is the only way you can escape by believing God's word. By believing his word. The word of God is powerful enough to change a hardened heart. Do you know that? As it did to Abraham... As it did to Lazarus, so it can do for you today. It can overcome unbelief. It can change your heart and cause you to repent by pointing you to none other than Jesus. Here's why this all matters. Yes, we do face the wrath of God, all of us, because of our sin. We are in line for that. It's coming. But Jesus came to bear the wrath that you deserve. All that we saw the rich man go through, the wrath of hell that's coming for you and me, Jesus bore that already. Jesus, who though he was innocent, yet for your sake bore the wrath you deserved. As we heard earlier in the worship time, he was despised, rejected, afflicted with sorrow and guilt. This should sound like hell to you. What we, what, what, what we cover today. Pierced, crushed, chastised, oppressed, and slaughtered. Jesus who was forsaken to anguish on a cross. Jesus who was sacrificed so that he could appease and turn God's wrath away from us. Jesus who did all of this to deliver us from the wrath that is to come. Jesus who rose from the dead to give you eternal life. Friends, as I close, you and I are the rich man. We are the rich man. You may not have and I, we may not have the same wealth that he did. But our hearts are just as hard and unrepentant and full of idols that we love in place of God. And God's right and necessary response to our sin, his wrath, is awaiting. It's awaiting us all. But if you believe the word of God, if you believe Christ bore God's wrath in your place, 
And if you do not harden your heart but repent, you can be saved. This is why Christians talk about salvation. What are we being saved from? We're being saved from the wrath of God. And that is the good news. That is the good news. So if this is your desire, or if you're still not sure, I just ask you, please, reach out to someone. Reach out to someone, because it's our joy to share God's Word with you. And I see many of you, you already know the Lord, you've, you, you, you believe, you've, you've repented. What do you take away? Well, never take for granted the wrath that Christ bore for your sin. Had it not been for Jesus, you and I would be in this parable. We would be there. As the worship team comes to lead us in a final song, I just want to close us off in prayer. If you can stand as well. This is probably the, the heaviest, hardest uh, message I've ever had to stand up and share with anyone. I'm so, I'm so amazed by the love of God, but you don't really appreciate that, do you? Until you realize what you should get. Right? Like, what is the love of God could be so cheap to us if we don't realize what we really deserve? So as I close... Let's just seek God that he will take this word, plant it deep in our hearts, and help us to know what to do next because something has to change. Something must change in light of what we hear. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. Oh God, even as I consider the sun that was shining down on us, oh Lord, I'm reminded of your grace, of your love, of your goodness. The sun that blinded us, that we had to move around and dilly-dally here, God, that brightness is nothing compared to Christ and his innocence and his perfection. And yet, because of his love, he was willing to lay down his life to be treated like a sinner, to bear the full wrath of your wrath not for his sin, but for ours, for mine. So God, um, if there's anyone here who has not obeyed, who has not believed, who has not repented, we know the wrath of God, your wrath still remains on them. But if anyone would believe your word, believe in what Christ has done for us. Christ will take your wrath, appease it with his blood so that we can go free. We can enter a freedom we've never ever known and we have eternity waiting for us to enjoy your goodness, to enjoy your full glorious presence. And God, for those of us who already know you, um, how often we take for granted 
this gift of salvation. It's not just a warm and fuzzy gift. Oh God, it, was a, it, it, it is blood spilt. It is flesh that is pierced. It is agonizing. It is tears that were wept. Everything that Christ went through should have been our fate. But he bore your wrath so that we could live. So help us, O Lord, not to be so willful in the way we live in rebellion against you. Now that we are saved, God, let us do all that we can to live in a way that is pleasing to you. And when we fail, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the forgiveness that was purchased for us at the cross. And now as we sing this song, O God, I pray, let us all reflect on what Christ has done. In Jesus, your name we pray. Amen.